My name is Tim Samuelson. I'm a cultural historian for the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs. And I've been interested almost all my life in old houses and Chicago history. When I was a kid, I used to, unbeknownst to my parents, I would sneak downtown and into the neighborhoods to look for old houses. And Prairie Avenue was one I was very interested in. My parents were thought I was playing down at the neighborhood playground and I'd be, you know, wandering down at 29th and Prairie looking at the houses. In fact, it was almost, in some ways, a depressing journey because every time you'd go, you would look for houses you'd seen before and they wouldn't be there anymore. But one that was always there was the Boyd House. It was always great. You'd go around the corner and see familiar things were gone altogether, but there the house would always be. Located on the east side of South Prairie Avenue, the Wood Maxie Boyd House is constructed of red brick and warm sandstone. The front lot is enclosed by a black wrought iron fence. I always was shy about just ringing the doorbell, but you'd always hope that you might meet somebody out in front who was planting the garden or cutting the grass. And then finally I was lucky one time in going by, and there's uh, Dr. Maxie working out in the garden. And of course, strike up a conversation through the iron fence. And then next thing you know, the iron gate is opened of the big fence, and next I'm touring through the house. The theme of the house is sunburst. So you see the half sunburst on the window, you see the half quarter here, you see the full sunburst on the stair. My name is Maxie, M-A-X-E-Y, not I-E. And I've been living in this house since 1948. Those figures on the wall, was that a deer? Oh, I didn't kill those. They were here. So whoever was here was evidently a good hunter. I don't remember when I came to Chicago, but I came here to go to school. I had heard of the University of Chicago. My mother and father were both college graduates. My father was a school principal and my mother was a school principal. And uh, the University of Chicago had the reputation of being very difficult. And I had the reputation of being bright, and so I wanted to try it. <laughs> and then when I got here, I was looking for a place to live. Elva Maxie came to Chicago in the mid-1940s along with her husband, African-American attorney Charles Boyd. And this was a time of a great housing shortage in Chicago, and it was especially critical in the African-American community. And even for African-American professionals like the Boyds, the only places that you could find a place to live were in really substandard small apartments. I have seen pitiful, deplorable, rotten, and damnable shacks, hovels, and hell holes in my travels. But when you see these Negro families huddle together like cattle in dilapidated wood sheds, makeshift huts made of old lumber, old tin signs, cardboard, and whatever could be picked up and fastened together as a shelter, one cannot help but realize that rotten and deplorable as all slum areas are, the black belt of Chicago beats them all when it comes to misery at its worst. Lewis Kurtz, 1945. So what did they wind up doing but getting an apartment? It's 61st Street that was so tiny. I mean, the way uh, I've heard it described, you could barely turn around or have two people pass by in the same room. And the apartment was so small that I couldn't get a double bed in, so I took twin beds and had a welder to weld one on top of the other. Kind of an impromptu bunk bed. 
And this is the kind of bed that they had because the bedroom of this awful rented apartment wasn't big enough to even hold a bed. And somebody upstairs and the husband didn't get along too well. And one day his clothes came raining down. She was trying to throw them down the stairwell. <laughs> I was trying to get out of there. So they looked around and but they had found a house on the south side of Chicago at 4313 South Berkeley Avenue. Beautiful old house from the late 19th century, but it still was largely a white neighborhood, although things were changing around it. I bought a building, finally, on Berkeley here, and ran into the restrictive covenant for the first time in my life. No part of 4313 South Berkeley Avenue shall be sold, given, conveyed or leased to any Negro or Negroes. The white families that lived in the neighborhood resorted to something that many families did at that time, and they created race covenants, which said that they were prohibited from selling the house to African-American families, and this was recorded right on the deed. The term Negro, as used herein, shall include every person having one-eighth part or more of Negro blood, or having any appreciable admixture of Negro blood, and every person who is what is commonly known as a colored person. March 15, 1945. I had bought it through a white man and this white lady, and that was the way they were living. They would buy houses under the restrictive covenant. I thought I would be able to live in it. And when I found out that that would be dangerous, I didn't want to go home and fight every night. Black families would move into white neighborhoods, and there would be violence. People would throw bricks through the windows and also just make life as difficult as possible. We were just looking for a decent place to live. That's all we were looking for. And I drove all over Chicago. And I saw these vacant houses around. Many of Chicago's one-time show streets have fallen into decay, but of all of them, the most abandoned and forlorn is Prairie Avenue, for nearly 50 years the city's gold coast. Here, mellowed with age, neglected, ghosts of their former selves, a few of the old mansions still standing dream of the glories of a golden past. Townsfolk Magazine, June 1947. And the one that really attracted their eye of all of these is this big, huge old mansion at 2801 South Prairie Avenue. And this, this one seemed to have a special appeal. Well, this house here at 2801 Prairie Avenue was the best of all the houses that were vacant. It was very spacious. I liked the woodwork particularly. I liked the mitre joints. These joints are really beautifully cut. It's really everything you would think a great old mansion should be. I mean, it sits behind a big wrought iron fence. It's got this really strong presence. And this amazing thing about it is this bright reddish color. And then through a big imposing arch immediately above a terracotta panel with beautiful ornamentation and a beautiful lady's face perpetually looking out to the front yard. The three-story grand staircase with its curve and sweep and carved sunbursts is magnificent. On the hallway landing is a stained glass window. This must have been a beautiful setting for the debut of Anne Louise, the lumberman's daughter. Chicago's American, 
Fashions, Food, and Society section. Now, the house was built by George Ellery Wood, lumberman, for his daughter's coming out party. And his daughter and her husband, Frank Meadowcroft, lived with Mr. Wood in the mansion. But when he died about 1905, the Meadowcrofts continued to live in the house. And we have evidence of them staying there up until about 1931. And then finally they moved out of the house and actually moved to an apartment hotel on the north side called the Webster Hotel. Some of the people really loved these places, that they gave them up because blacks were moving in. As though whites just fled. I think it was a general exodus almost. This district became a veritable slum. Italians and even Negroes got in below 22nd Street. We could no longer compete with the kind of cabarets that were coming in. That is, we were not willing to, and the trade we formerly had would not come back at night because the district was getting too tough. Restaurant man on 22nd Street. But rather than sell off the house or uh, have it be cut up into a rooming house, basically the Meadowcrofts, after they moved to the north side, just locked the door of the house with the furniture still in it and just let it sit in kind of suspended animation. So my husband started writing. He looked it up, and we, he started writing Mrs. Anne Louise Meadowcroft. And her name had been Wood, so it was Anne Louise Wood Meadowcroft. So the Boyds went through the property records and identified the owner and then found Annie Meadowcroft, the daughter of the original owner, still living in her apartment hotel on the north side. We wrote her for two and a half years, at least my husband wrote her, and finally she wanted to see us. They went to the Webster Hotel to talk to Annie Meadowcroft about the house. We got shown to the help elevator, because I was black. I decided I wasn't going to take it. And so I called up and told her that I couldn't come up, and she said, well, I'll send my caretaker down for you. So the caretaker came down, and so we went up on a regular elevator. <laughs> and uh, Annie Meadowcroft was absolutely charmed by the Boyds. And she looked at me, and she said, oh, you have little hands and little feet like me. And so she took off her ring and wanted me to put it on. And so I put it on, and... Uh, she was a very charming young lady, and she started to, woman, she was in her 80s then. And I found that the reason she was anxious to see me is because she had fallen in love with my husband's letters to her over the years. Said he reminded uh, her of her father. She said, oh yes, I would really like for you to have the house. I think you could appreciate it. It's been standing up all these years, and I didn't want anybody in it. And she said, I'll give it to you. And so I said, ooh. So my husband said, oh, no, you can't take it. She's too old. You know, they said we cheated her. Mr. Boyd uh, thought that this could be construed as taking advantage of an elderly lady, and that wouldn't be the thing to do, that they really couldn't in good conscience do that. And she said, well, how much do you have? So I told her. She said, okay, I'll take that. And finally, it was worked out uh, at the very end of 1948, that the house was deeded from Annie Meadowcroft through her trustees to the Boyds for $6,500. And so they took possession of this great house. And so that's the way it happened.
For $6,500, the uh, Boyds got the piece of property with the house with its furnishings. Chicago's American newspaper. The mansion contained elaborately carved oak and mahogany desks, secretaries, sideboards, bookcases, chairs, and tables that were the height of fashion in America half a century ago. The third floor has a stuffed deer's head mounted on the wall and the original billiard table and fittings. Big old Brunswick pool table with leather pockets on the sides and racks on the wall with the pool cues. There's even the line going across the ceiling with the little beads on it that you would actually use your cue to move to keep track of the scoring. It almost looks like somebody was in the process of playing and then just walked away and never came back, and there's the score still lined up over over the table. Charles and Alva recalled moving into the mansion. It was December, and the temperature was just above zero. I they know I moved in in December of 48 with no heat, no light, no anything. And I made a fire in that fireplace in the dining room and put twin beds in there. The house had been unoccupied for 17 years. Windows were out and the roof leaked badly. First night I was in here and it rained. It was the orchestra playing. Each pan had a different sound. And they would pop, pip, pip, you know. And the water coming into all the cans and buckets I had all over the house. It was eerie, miserably uncomfortable, and a gigantic task for a young couple to take on. But Alva tells how she danced about hugging the young attorney and making plans a mile a minute. The Boyds undertook to restore the house meticulously. In fact, where the old white coat of plaster had delaminated, they actually went and they learned how to take an axe and chip off all the deteriorated plaster and then replaster it exactly the way it was. And I learned how to turn a hatchet sideways and I could cut off just the white coat and not hurt the brown. She also did the tuck pointing using a chisel and on hands and knees they both scrubbed and finished the beautiful hardwood floors. Friends came, some of them, and said, oh, you going to paint the woodwork white? And I said, no, I'm just going to wash it. Throughout the restoration, Boyd carried on with his law practice in the front room of the mansion, but he found time to hang 250 feet of gutters on the third story and to help with the plastering. And they had this wonderful house that was just as beautiful when they finally were finished with it in the late 1940s as it was when the Wood family moved into it in 1886. Now there were other houses like it up and down Prairie Avenue. Some were even larger than the Boyd's house. Many of them had been bought up by speculators, had been cut up into rooming houses, so, whereas the Boyds just got better and better with time, many of the ones that surrounded it actually started to deteriorate and decay and fall apart. So the city became uncomfortable about the situation. And there were these plans that were developed in the 1950s for urban renewal. Chicago Tribune, January 7, 1953. Building Commissioner Christensen ordered the demolition of 26 old and dangerous buildings in the city's campaign to eliminate eyesores. Basically, the city would come in and condemn properties, and the owners of the property just kind of said, well, that's it. 
you can't fight City Hall. What are you going to do? We just have to move on. Since the new campaign against old structures began a month ago, 14 structures designated as dangerous and dilapidated have been wrecked as a result of efforts by Christensen's department. One by one, the houses disappeared, and there actually were movements by the city to actually condemn and take over the Boyd's house but they stood up to it. I didn't think badly, particularly of the city, but I was determined to try to beat them if I could. She had to be a fighter. I'm LaVeda Robinson, and I took sociology from uh, Dr. Alva Maxey. To that point in my educational career, I had never had an African-American teacher. So she made an impression just by her presence. I think you can fight anybody if you really have a situation that you want to defend, the thing to do is to try to defend it. They want to clear that whole area. At that point, there was the Boyd's house and then the lady next door. Those were the only two old mansions left, I believe. But the plan was to destroy that whole area and make it public housing. And this house would have been right in the center. My husband was a little insignificant looking man, but he had some brains. And uh, he was a young lawyer, you know, and I wanted him to be my attorney, and I couldn't get anybody else. Nobody wanted to take the case, and I, so I told him, he, he said he couldn't take it. And I said, well, finally I told him, I said, well, I got nobody else. And he said, I can't take it. He said, a, a lawyer that has himself for a client has a fool for a client. I'm no fool. So I said, well, you got to do it. So I locked him downstairs after breakfast. I had a padlock on the door. I said, I'll let you out when you can be my lawyer. And um, he stayed down there until around about 2.30 or 3 o'clock, something like that. So he finally called up and said, I'm hungry as a bear. I'm ready to be your lawyer. <laughs> so I let him out, and that was that. So Mr. Boyd got other people to sign petitions to say to the city, these are older houses, but we're living in them, and... Why should they be torn down for public housing if we're making good use of them? And he spoke before the city council. Gentlemen, in connection with the proposed extension of the Prairie Courts Housing Project, may we respectfully bring to the attention of your honorable committee that the proposed site includes adjoining properties improved by structures which are extremely well built, architecturally sound, in a good state of repair, an asset to the community, and proper subjects for conservation. We wish to urge that these properties be spared. In the end, their house survived, but in the most remarkable manner, because it wasn't long where once was a street just lined with these beautiful stone and red brick mansions one after the other. Here was the Boyd House sitting all by itself. Everything was torn down around it and around it was just flattened rubble and then eventually housing projects were built surrounding it. The Chicago Daily News. The facial change is just about complete north of Cermak Road. To the south it is rapidly gaining in progress. A housing project, Prairie Courts, is eating more and more into the architecture of this lost age. There were some low-rise houses just to the north of her. The other buildings behind were high-rise, and it was very noisy. Children were running all around, and I thought, boy, 
This is an unusual place for a large house like this. You're in the middle of all of this contemporary public housing. Chicago Tribune, June 9, 1961. The Urban Renewal Administration in Washington announced the approval of a slum clearance project for a 42-acre tract on Chicago's south side. As part of the 1950s agreement to save the house, the city agreed that there would be no further efforts to demolish the house for urban renewal. But by the early 1960s, the city seemed to have forgotten about that agreement. Milton P. Webster, chief attorney for the Department of Urban Renewal, said the city needs the property and two adjoining parcels to bring the area in conformity with slum clearance for residential development. The woman next door had lost her house. She couldn't maintain it. And it was abandoned, and the city had to destroy it. So they approached the boys and said, look, we have other plans for this land, and we would like to just go on and take it at this point. And I guess they probably offered him some money. The City Department of Urban Renewal has offered $18,000 to the owners, Mr. and Mrs. Charles W. Boyd, for the property. But they've turned it down and have decided to fight the condemnation action. Whatever I was offered to me, it was ridiculous. They were still living there. They were professional people. They had their books there. This was their life. This was the era of Richard J. Daly, who had a very strong control of the city. And... Uh, I don't know of anyone that was able to actually stop urban renewal from just basically having that bulldozer start at one end of the block and just plow right through to the other. But Mr. Boyd again wrote legal language, how they had maintained it for all of those years, and it was their home. It was not in a dilapidated condition, and um, there was no need to destroy it. Chicago Sun-Times, July 28, 1962. A petition containing 1,500 signatures was presented Friday to a city official in a plea to spare a historic Prairie Avenue mansion from urban renewal bulldozers. On Tuesday, before Circuit Court Judge Charles S. Doherty, hearings will begin on a city suit to condemn that property. All these buildings were here when I moved in here, and I saw them torn down. I saw the one next door burnt up. They took off the roof in the center. Then they set the center on fire and just threw everything in. I, I was right here. I had flame marks on my dining room windowsills. So I hosed down the house constantly while, while they burnt that one next door. If the house had been demolished in the 1960s, I mean, part of the tragedy would have been all of the work that the Boyds had put into the house and the passion and the labor would have all been for naught. But in the long run, it would have been a great loss for the city. I mean, where else can you have a great old Southside mansion as intact as that house? And if it had disappeared in the 60s, today, nobody would even realize the magnitude of that loss. Chicago Sun-Times, July 31, 1962. The city will not tear down a historic Southside mansion whose owners spent thousands of dollars to rehabilitate it. Mayor Daly said Monday that he has asked the City Department of Urban Renewal to withdraw a condemnation suit against Mr. and Mrs. Charles W. Boyd, owners of the 24-room house at 2801 South Prairie. This rehabilitation is the very thing we are trying to encourage, the mayor said. He praised the Boyds for their work in remodeling the home, which is in an area where many of the city's finest homes were in the late 1800s.
Chicago Tribune, August 21, 2000. With Mayor Richard Daly's blessing, the Chicago Housing Authority is preparing to demolish all of the agency's decaying high-rises, replacing them with new or rehabilitated mixed-income housing. The deteriorating Prairie Courts public housing development would be demolished and replaced with a $23 million mixed-income rental community under the proposed plan. What's happened now is that the projects that were built around it not that long ago just got pounded into rubble and the Boyd House is sitting all by itself all over again. The house definitely became more significant part of her life after her sister died and especially after Mr. Boyd died. He died in 1990. I think she felt this would be her legacy. She had no children to go on to be proud of about what they're doing. This house is her legacy. Part of Maxie's legacy is the lesson that you can stand up for your rights, that you can stand up to City Hall, and you can stand up for your ideals. They did it, and here's the proof. That was what Boyd and I slept in when we were in that house. You couldn't get a double bed in the bedroom. You bet you go into one of the old bedrooms on the second floor, and here's this great old high-ceilinged room, and there is the welded-together bed sitting there that they had to use as their bed when they lived in the terrible tiny apartment near 61st Street in their early days before they could get a place to live. And you see how I welded, had them welded together? I didn't do it, but I had a man to do it. It was my idea. That's my design. <laughs> in general, my philosophy is that if you really believe something, you know, you fight for it. Anything, I don't care what it is, I think you should fight for it if you really believe something. And I would say that even now, it doesn't make any difference what the time it is. You, you never know when you can win, you know. I think you, well, I, don't, I think everybody's happy with me here now. I don't see anybody wanting to throw me out. Mm-hmm.